Let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Zechariah, the prophet, wrote these words, inspired by the Holy Spirit to teach us a lesson. In that day, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness. Thank God for that fountain that's open. And it will be available to all of Israel shortly. So, Father, thank you for the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Anoint each of us as we listen to truth. Holy Spirit, you're the author of the truth, illuminator of the truth, leading us and guiding us into all truth. And I pray that our part, our participation as we allow your truth to transform us. Let it be transformational truth. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Some of the worst wounds you'll ever encounter will come from those who call themselves Christians. (laughs) They're wounds that should never take place. They can be the most difficult to recover from. And I'm going to show you in a few moments a man who was wounded in the house of his friends by his own people. I want to show you some different kinds of wounds that he encountered, and then you're going to see how Jesus went through this process and how that all applies to us as we look at Holy Week and examine it once again, leading up to the crucifixion and burial of Jesus Christ. Zechariah 12, he says, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Then he goes on to say, and one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? Then he will answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. All three of these verses are prophetic about Jesus. The fountain opened in the house of David came through Jesus' suffering on the cross. It purchased our redemption. Looking upon whom they have pierced is the Messiah. One day we will see him break through the clouds of glory and make his return. Then the people who have thought he was not Messiah will know he is Messiah, Jesus. Being wounded in the house of your friends is what Jesus will say during his millennial reign here for 1,000 years on earth. And he will say to the people, these wounds came in the house of my friends. Now, most of us know a little bit about the crucifixion. And many are not aware that for 1,000 years before Jesus was crucified, the psalmist prophesied how that would look at crucifixion. He said in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, familiar words, because these were the words that Jesus spoke from the cross. He said, he trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him, let him deliver him, since he delights in him. And how many know this was said at the cross when people said, let God deliver him, if in fact he is the son of God. Then the psalmist wrote, I am poured out like water and my bones are out of joint, my heart is like wax. It is melted within me. That happened when Jesus was crucified. Goes on to say, for dogs have surrounded me. 
The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. A revelation of Jesus being attacked demonically at the cross and pierced. Then he goes on to say, the, the, the psalmist, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. At the cross, the soldiers gambled for the garments of Jesus. It's remarkable that a man hanging on a cross could make these prophecies all come to pass, being immobilized on a cross, because he didn't prescript the Roman soldiers to do what they did, nor the Jewish leaders on what to say while he was hanging there. The writer of Psalm 22, David, gave us five major predictions that are found in the four Gospels related to Jesus' death. Then after the resurrection in John, the other disciples therefore said to him, that be Thomas, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas had some questions about Jesus' resurrection. You saw the movie The Passion. You saw graphically displayed the whipping and the beating and the crucifixion of Jesus. But did you pay attention to what the word says about some of those details? The gospels tell us the Romans took a thorn bush and wrapped it into the form of a crown and placed it on Jesus' head. What was their purpose? It was to humiliate the king of kings. So first, let's take a look at the crown of thorns. When Adam sinned in the garden, God cursed the ground as punishment. And he told Adam, from now on, while you're working it, it's going to be hard. You're going to sweat. And in fact, you're going to have weeds and thorns and thistles popping up instead of just pure crop. God said the ground will produce thorns and thistles, and Adam would have to sweat from his brow to get anything to come up and, and to actually bring a harvest. In Hebrews 6, it says, but that which bears thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. So Satan understood better than any other that thorn bushes came as a result of the fall into sin by the human race. The thorns represented a curse. And by placing those thorns on Jesus' head, Satan was cursing Christ by placing something cursed on his head. If the Roman soldiers had taken total control of the body of Jesus, they just would have simply removed it from the cross and thrown it into a burial spot in the ravine. If the Jews would have taken sole control over the body of Jesus, they would have thrown it into Gehenna, outside the city, into a valley called Gehenna, which was the garbage dump of Jesus' day where they burned their trash and the bodies of criminals. And there were 10 occasions in the New Testament where that word is used for hell, the word Gehenna. Jesus used it when he was describing the eternal fires of hell. He was using that word Gehenna, comparing the trash dump of his day, which was a visible they could see it. They could understand it. Then he would paint the picture. Now, make that eternal. That's what hell is going to be like, where the trash and the bodies of criminals and animals and dung were all burned in that valley. Now, if Joseph of Arimathea had not gone and petitioned Pilate for the body of Jesus, that's exactly what would have happened to his body. He would have been pitched into the ravine and into the fire, 
and the body of Jesus with its nail prints would have been consumed. Why is it the Father did not allow Jesus' body to be consumed? For you, he said, will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Understand, Jesus' body would not be allowed to be burned or devoured because Jesus had to rise from the tomb in that body with the prints in his hands and in his feet and the scar in his side. And why are these scars important? Because on the day he returns to earth, how will they know he is Messiah? See, Muslims don't believe Jesus was crucified as depicted in the gospel. They believe that Jesus was the son of Mary and one day would return to the city of Jerusalem, but not the Jesus that's depicted in the gospels. The Jesus they believe in has no scars. The Jesus we believe will carry scars on his body because you will know the Messiah by the wounds in his hands and the wounds in his feet. Satan would like to announce that the crucifixion never happened. It's a deception, another one of his, and that it was nothing but a ruse. Jesus never died. Jesus never rose from the dead. But at judgment, Jesus will stand up, get up off of his throne, and reveal the scars in his hands and in his feet and in his side and say, you see these? This is evidence. I was dead, but am alive forevermore. Satan wanted to curse Christ, have his body burned. But the father said, you will not burn his body. He'll be buried in a rich man's tomb. He didn't need to buy that tomb, just borrow the tomb because he wouldn't be staying very long. And his scars would be seen. And secondly, there was the reed. When they had twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, then they bowed the knee before him. These are the Roman soldiers and mocked him saying, hail, king of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. As they beat him on the head, the crown of thorns was driven deeper into his scalp. And what was that purpose? Taking a reed and striking Christ on the head. The Greek word for reed is kalamos. It's translated staff or rod. Understand when your head gets beaten like that, blows to the head can damage brain cells. And most cells in your body can be replaced, but brain cells cannot be reproduced. That's why some alcoholics, after years of drinking, may not have had one drop to drink, but they still appear to be drunk. They've killed off so many brain cells. Alcohol kills brain cells. Think about it. A blow to the head can affect memory. Amnesia can occur. Why would Satan be interested in Christ being hit in the head like that? To make Christ lose his ability to reason because of the prophecy. If Christ would have been placed on the cross with severe injury, even unconscious, the following would have never happened. He would have forgotten the statements of Psalm 22 that he was now fulfilling. I just read them to you. Those seven statements Christ spoke while on the cross, he would have forgotten those statements because of a severe injury to his brain. The thief on the cross nearby would have never been born again because he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into paradise. If Jesus was unconscious from being beaten, he would have never been able to remember anything. A severe blow to Jesus' head might have blanked all of that out. 
And if they had successfully caused Jesus' brain severe damage, he would have never been able to cry, it is finished, conscious of what was happening in the timing of the Father. That statement is so important because on the Day of Atonement, when the priest offered the very last lamb, he would hold up his hands and declare, it is finished. Jesus is the last lamb to ever die for the sins of mankind. Jesus had to cry, it is finished. And Satan was attempting to cause Jesus to forget who he was and what his purpose was. The beating around his head was an attempt to fog up the memory of Christ so he might forget his purpose and his mission. Third, the drink offered to Jesus. If Jesus had drunk that liquid they offered at the crucifixion, a painkiller, an opiate, something that literally would cause you to not be conscious of what's happening to you or around you. It was a painkiller, a morphine product. And he might not have recognized his mother was at the cross if he would have been stupefied by a drug he ingested. He would not have been able to address his disciple John. He might not have made the seven statements from the cross that completed the plan of our redemption. So before he died, they took a sponge and they tried to give him of this drink to help numb the pain. He tasted it and rejected it in Matthew 27. See, the Talmud reads like this, quote, when one is let out to be crucified, he was given a goblet of wine containing this kind of specific drug in order to numb his senses and confuse him. So he will not suffer so much from the fear of death because it was written, give strong drink to him about to perish and to the bitter soul, end quote, from the Talmud. The noble women of Jerusalem used to bring this drink to those who were about to be crucified. So not only were they applying blows to the head of Jesus, but if we were taken of that drink, just as they were about to crucify him, he would have been numbed to everything happening around him. That was given to numb the senses and the confusion. He refused. Satan didn't just want Jesus crucified. He wanted him utterly confused. So he could not fulfill the prophetic that God had written in Scripture thousand years prior. In 1 Corinthians 2, it says, No, the wisdom we speak of is the mystery of God, his plan that was previously hidden, even though he made it for our ultimate glory before the world began. God plotted this all out, every detail. But the rulers of this world have not understood it. If they had, they would not have crucified our glorious Lord. God kept this from everybody and then revealed it at the moment. Satan didn't understand in detail what was happening related to Jesus' crucifixion, but he wanted for sure to impair Jesus' memory during the crucifixion. Number four, they spit on Jesus. That was a very degrading act, an attempt to diminish a person, spitting on Jesus' face. And they spat in his face and beat him and others struck him with the palms of their hands. Those are the soldiers again. And as the soldiers spat on Jesus, that spittle ran down his face because there was an entire garrison of Romans that was doing this to him, one after another. It was a fulfillment of prophecy, Isaiah 50. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. 
Say, Satan knows the word. The enemy would have known this passage was in the word. For instance, the Miriam, Moses' sister, had ridiculed her brother Moses because he was marrying an Ethiopian woman. And God rebuked her, and she contracted leprosy for her disrespect. And the Lord said to Moses, if her father had but spit in her face, would she not be ashamed seven days? Let her be shut out of the camp for seven days, and afterward she may be received again. If a father was ashamed of his daughter for her behavior, he could spit in her face. That act was to bring shame. As a result of that shame, she'd be shut out of the camp, out of the family for seven days. Then she could be brought back. Miriam had to spend seven days outside of the camp for her act of disrespect. Spitting on somebody, according to the Old Testament law, would produce humiliation and shame. Satan was attempting to produce embarrassment, condemnation, humiliation in a man who knew no sin, Jesus. Jesus the Christ knew no sin, was without sin. In the eyes of Satan, that troubled him more than anything, to be confronted by a human being who was absolutely sin-free. The spitting was to humiliate Jesus, to make Jesus feel condemned by his own father's law. Fifthly, they tore out Jesus' beard. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. That's prophetic. Jesus' back was split open. He was spat on. They tore out his beard. What a frenzy they were in. Everything mentioned in this prophecy was fulfilled at Jesus' crucifixion. Why did they tear out Jesus' beard? In the scripture, Jewish priests wore beards. They shall not make any bald place on their heads, nor shall they shave the edges of their beards, nor make any cuttings in their flesh. Old Testament priests wore beards. Aaron the high priest wore a beard. And when he was anointed with oil, as scripture says, they poured it on his head, and it ran down through his beard and down onto his garments. And if he was told, Aaron, if you marry a non-believing, non-Jewish woman who doesn't believe in our God, you'll have your beard plucked out. It says in Nehemiah, struck some of them and pulled out their hair. To pull out the beard was another sign of complete humiliation, let alone the pain it produced physically. Can you imagine the excruciating pain that brought? Because there was nothing worse than having your flesh literally torn with your beard off of your face. When the Israelis would capture, that passage from Nehemiah, when the Israelis would capture a foreign king, they would shave off the hair from his head and pull out his beard in an act of humiliation. It says of Jesus, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So pulling out the beard of Jesus was humiliation and pain. And Satan designed this pain for Jesus' total destruction. He worked him over mentally, worked him over physically, worked him over emotionally, attacked him from every possible angle to try to break him. And six, they split Jesus' back open with a cat of nine tails. Now, it had a wooden handle, leather straps, 
At the end of each strap was a piece of lead attached to the leather, nine pieces of leather. Embedded in the lead were sharp pieces of rock and glass, and there were tiny nails in the tip of each piece of embedded lead. The device was very heavy, and it took a person who was skilled and trained to use this. It wasn't just anybody who did this. A Roman soldier was trained to literally use this device to slice and dice open your back. It was not just a beating. He was not just getting beaten. It was a precision dissection of your back. The prophecy said, I gave my back to those who struck me. Historians tell us those beaten with that device because of the pain often bit their tongue in half. The beating was so severe, sometimes ribs and parts of one's intestines were exposed, and some died during the beating or shortly thereafter. And the Romans had no set limits, but when they did it by Jewish law, they struck that device 40 times minus one, because number 40 could be the final blow that caused death. And they didn't want you to die. The Jewish, Jewish people didn't want you to die. They just wanted you to suffer. In the book, None of These Diseases, the medical doctor who authored it said, if you take all known diseases, they could be condensed into 39 categories. And why is that important? Because the word says this, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. In Peter's epistle, he says, by whose stripes you were healed. And he wasn't talking about people who were healed in a special service he had conducted. He's saying, Jesus has already paid for your miracle. When Jesus healed the sick before he was beaten, he instituted new covenant healing on credit. And when the bill came due, the cat of nine tails was the price. Isaiah looked forward to that moment happening in time. Peter looked back at what had happened, and we're still living in the blessing of the power of Calvary today. According to Psalm 22, it was required that his hands and feet be pierced. The reason for that, so that blood could fully exit his body, there was no way of getting all of his blood out of his body except through the act of crucifixion. And how many know it's through the blood redemption comes. That's the price of our salvation. The Romans took the act of crucifixion from the Greeks. The Greeks took it from the Persians. It was called the death of slaves in history. Now, there happened to be a rebellion conducted by a group of Pharisees, the result of which they were captured and they were sentenced to crucifixion. 800 Pharisees were crucified as their wives and children had their throats cut. The Pharisees were hanging on crosses, being forced to watch their spouses and children die in front of them. In a Roman crucifixion, there was one witness to certify the death and four attending soldiers who took the criminal to the crucifixion site. In Jesus' crucifixion, you see that absolutely the way it was. Four soldiers are gambling for the garment of Jesus. One soldier, a centurion, is observant over the entire scene. He's the commander. He's supposed to certify the death certificate. But he got so caught up in all the strange happenings of the day 
the sky turning black like midnight, the earth rumbling and all kinds of things happening simultaneously. He stopped and he said, truly, this man was the son of God. And I wonder if he wrote that on Jesus' death certificate because death had to be certified under Roman law. Seventh, Jesus was crucified on a cross. The word says, cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. And why is that so important? Because the first man, Adam, sinned at a tree. The second Adam, Jesus, would gain it all back on a tree. And the crossbar is what Christ carried across his shoulders. He fell under the load, and no doubt from the dehydration and from the loss of blood. And you remember the first prophecy about redemption. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and his seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Speaking to the devil, you're going to bruise the head of the Son of God, or rather the heel of the Son of God, but he's going to stomp on your head. And the prophecy, the heel of Messiah would be bruised. Now, how would that be bruised? But the nail that was put through the feet of Jesus making a permanent scar. The enemy would bruise Jesus' heel. That same heel would one day turn around and crush the head of the serpent. We have a king who knows how to stomp on the devil. Amen? And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Jesus is the head of the body. We are the body of Christ. Each is a part of the whole. Somewhere on the body, there's a set of feet. So excuse me while I rejoice, because when I pick up my feet and rejoice before God, I remind the enemy, Jesus has put you under his feet. And the word says the Father has put all things under his feet. So when you pick up your feet and you praise the Lord, you remind the adversary you are dancing on the head of the snake. You're dancing on that enemy, trying to defeat you, hurt you, and take you out. You get to dance on his head. Now, what does that have to do with anything for today? The thorns, the reed, the spittle. It's a word called atonement. These were the works of the atonement. Every year, there had to be atonement for sin. And there was no atonement without shedding of blood. Sin requires a payment. For the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus. See, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. On the Day of Atonement, there were two goats, the scapegoat and the goat for the Lord, one sacrificed and then the other. The high priest lifted his hands on the other scapegoat, transferring all of Israel's sins to it, then sent it out in the wilderness never to come back. So when it says that Jesus bore, it's the same word concept as the scapegoat bearing all of Israel's sins. It was laid on him. 
all our iniquities, all our sins, and all laid on Jesus. Hear the word. He was oppressed, rejected, despised, a man of sorrows, a man acquainted with grief, smitten, wounded, and afflicted. Everything that we did that earned us eternal death, Jesus bore the price in full for that. In most churches, you will have preached a one-part atonement, salvation. And here's the message, ABC, ask, believe, confess. There's the ABCs of salvation, ask, believe, confess. You're saved and you're baptized. In many places, that's where it stops. But you have to go to the next level included in the atonement because there's more in the atonement than just my redemption, healing for your body. There's the third level that's hardly ever preached about anywhere, and many Christians struggle with this third part of the atonement. And if I were to ask today, how many of you are born again? Nearly everybody's hand should go up here. Can someone talk you out of it? Can I? No. Can an unbeliever talk you out of it? No. How many of you have ever been healed physically? You know God through his atoning work has touched you in body and you've been made whole and healthy because he restored your health. We preach that. Here's what's not preached. Emotional atonement. And many problems Christians have are not spiritual. They are emotional. The complaining you hear in some places, in some churches, People getting over-emotional about something. Don't like the audio level. Don't like the music style. Don't like the temperature. The drama they have all week long. Because they've got, like all of us, an emotional reservoir that needs to be tamped down. Allowing personal opinions to run away with emotions. More Christians have emotional problems. Many problems among Christians, people not controlling their emotions. Bless God, I'll say what I want to say. This is how I feel. How do you believe? That's what God's interested in, not how you feel. And my feelings change all day long, not how I feel. This is America. We can do whatever we want. That is an uncontrolled tongue. Why do you say that, Pastor? Because first and foremost, if I say I am a follower of Jesus, first and foremost, I belong to the kingdom of God. And it operates by a different set of values. My problems would cease tomorrow if people would discipline their emotions. Many problems. For the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. It's a characteristic, part of the character and nature of Jesus. Notice Jesus, under any circumstance, had full and complete command of emotions under control. No spouting off when offended, dealing with it biblically, He gave us, these are the kingdom principles by which you deal with an offense that you perceive to be an offense or one in actuality that is an offense. Because offense is an emotional issue. 
Yeah, it's spiritual too, with spiritual implications, yes. Because the longer you hang on to it, the more it's going to damage your spiritual walk. Unforgiveness is an emotional issue. If you don't believe it, get two people together who won't forgive each other. I didn't start it, you did. And here you go. Okay, emotions. Yes, you did. Emotions. And most churches have not preached there is in the atonement emotional healing. Grief is an emotional issue. Someone you love dies, and now you want to die. And weeks and months later, you want to still die. And then years later, you're still wanting to die. It's an emotion that leads to a spiritual problem because it begins to eat away at your spiritual walk. It's overwhelming your spiritual man. Guilt is an emotional issue. Guilt makes you feel miserable. Condemnation makes you feel sick. And the longer you hang on to these corrupted emotions, unforgiveness can make you very sick. All these emotions can affect you physically, not to say what it's doing to you spiritually. The good news of the cross and Jesus' scars, spiritual atonement for my sins. Thank you. I could never pay this. Physical atonement for your body. You get healed by what Jesus suffered by his wounds. Emotional atonement for the soul. The seat of our emotions. So why do you think Jesus has these scars on his hands and feet and in his side? For your spiritual atonement. Why do you think Jesus has scars on his back for your physical atonement? Why do you think he, he wore a crown of thorns and bled from his head and face? That's where your emotions begin, the grief, the heartbreak, the oppression in your mind. Emotional atonement. The region Jesus took those thorns to become the master of the thorns that torment you. And if the Father laid on Jesus the sins of the world, the sicknesses of the world, the emotional discomfort all mankind experiences, why are you still carrying what Jesus carried for you? Hmm. I say it with love and care about the body of Christ. Sometimes people enjoy sympathy and enablement for the part of their unsanctified being. And we want to keep feeding that part of us that needs to die. In the early days of Pentecost, you got saved, baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit, healed, and sanctified. The process by which we subdue that old emotional nature. Now, of course, we love one another and care deeply for each other. You won't find a church that will jump up and step up and take care of people any better than the one you're in. Support people in pain. Stand with them because we are to weep with those who weep. But some people, it becomes their way of life, their crutch. It's perpetual. It never ends. Needy of constant attention. Never letting that heal. Some haven't learned to relate in any other way other than to complain and gripe and squawk about stuff all the time or just to go to fighting about stuff all the time because that emotional area has never come under the atonement, unsanctified emotions. Now, grief is normal. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. The nation of Israel wept for 30 days when Moses died. 
And God called for an end to the grief. So, okay, Moses is dead. Let's go. We've got a promised land to go conquer. Jesus looked at the death of his friend and grieved. Then he stood up and pointed to life ahead. Grief that can cripple you for years is not normal. When a natural disaster damages a community, it's great sorrow and grief that hinders us and holds us. But there comes a time when you go from sorrow to rebuilding. Now we've got to go forward. You act positively. Now you've understood your salvation. And some folk here have understood the fact that there's healing in the atonement. Why is it you let the devil talk you into being oppressed? Why would you allow the enemy to talk you into what Jesus got rid of for you? He removed your sorrow and your oppression. The thorns cover the battle for your mind. The hand wounds, the work that you do. The feet wounds, your choices, where you're walking. The stripes for your sickness. The spittle for your humiliation. Have you ever been wounded by someone? By a Christian? who's was supposed to be a close friend. How many know that hurts more than when an unbeliever cusses you out? The wounds of Jesus and your wounds correspond. One, your wound is the proof they didn't destroy you. Jesus said, touch my hand. You feel the wound? It's proof. I was dead. I am alive. Same thing with your wounds. They knocked me down. I got back up with the help of God. I have some wounds. But thank the Lord, I'm still here. Two, your wounds are your weapons that bring salvation and healing to others. When I need healing, I remember Jesus was being beaten on my behalf. And once you've been through that kind of thing, where you've been healed and touched and reconstituted, you assist someone else to go through it. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You become a blessing to others who are in the middle of their struggle. Disease, you tried to kill me, but I'm still here. Still believing God. Amen. Three, your wounds become your trophies. You're an overcomer. Jesus kicked open the tomb, his wounds. What John saw in the book of Revelation, we overcome the devil by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. And John wrote, I looked and behold in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Does that mean Lamb of God, final Lamb, atonement for our sins, been slain? Mm-hmm. It had been because he has the scars to prove it. Jesus' scars are trophies. Satan could not do what he set out to do. Instead of licking your wounds, start bragging on your wounds. Paul said, I glory in the cross. I've been knocked down. I am not defeated. And on that, let's stand and give thanks to God. Been knocked down, but not defeated. We're here today because of the goodness of God. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Love you, Lord. You're so good to us. Blessing of God does not mean you're exempt from trouble. 
blessing of God means I've been to hell and came back an overcomer. God helped me.